News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, today is the day that we get a better idea of the financial picture in Ottawa. Finance Minister will be providing a fiscal update, but what do we expect to hear? Well, for that, we turn to Global News National Reporter in Ottawa, Mackenzie Gray. Good morning, Mackenzie. Good morning. So what do we think we're going to hear today? The big headline thing the Liberals are saying right now and sources that we've talked to is that there's going to be a new tax on stock buybacks. And this is something we've seen the Biden administration bring in the U.S. They put in a 1% tax on companies that buy back shares. And the reason they're trying to focus in on this is, A, they want to be similar to the U.S. and have similar rules for the two economies. But as well, you know, we've heard criticisms from the NDP and some liberal cabinet ministers saying, look, large companies have been raking it in higher inflation, and in particular, higher resources prices mean that a lot of Canadian companies have done quite well. What are they doing with that extra money that they made from the profits? A lot of them are buying back shares. We've seen this from a number of oil companies at West. The Liberals are saying, look, we want you to either save that money for a rainy day if the economy turns, or give that money back to dividends or reinvest in the company. So that's one of the big headline things, too. We're also expecting more monies for students, low-income workers, as well as a, a better idea or more money or a plan around a transition for energy workers who were looking to leave that industry and get retraining to go somewhere else. So those are kind of the programs and taxes that we're expecting. But on top of that, too, there's projections in this. And the, the real two key things I'm looking for is, one, is there going to be a recession according to government projections? They usually have three different projections in this. We'll see where they go there. And two, what do they think interest rates are going to be for the long term? That's what a lot of Canadians are wondering right now. Okay. So is there a theme to this? Like I understand also the finance minister was going to be talking about fiscal discipline. That's kind of the thing that they want to say. Look, the liberals of the Serb check days are over. We're a more constrained, centrist liberal. We understand the economic environment. We don't want to throw more money onto the inflationary fire. We're trying to pare back. But while at the same time, we want to make it clear that lower income Canadians, people who are feeling the pinch from inflation, can expect that they're going to get some government support, not too much to make things worse for inflation, but enough to make your life a little bit easier. That's the line that Christian Freeland and Justin Trudeau are trying to toe today. It's a new, fiscally more responsible Liberal Party. Interesting. Okay, so we know that the opposition has been attacking, you know, the Liberal government over the economy and inflation. So what, what, what's the opposition hoping to hear today? Well, Pierre Polyev wants tax cuts. It's pretty much the only thing he's been talking about in the House of Commons. He wants the Liberals to cut the carbon tax completely, but more importantly for him, stop the upcoming increase in the new year to the carbon tax as well as he wants increases to premiums on CI and EP, uh, EI and CPP to stop. And the Liberals have really hit Pierre Polyet back on the whole idea that they cut EI. They're saying, look, the economy is in a more difficult position right now. The expectation is that some people might be losing their jobs. Why would you cut an increase to EI benefits right now? They're going to help people who lose their jobs. So we'll see what Mr. Polyev has to say after uh, Christopher Freeland tables this at about 4 o'clock Eastern time. I don't think he's going to like it. But on the other hand, Jagmeet Singh, the Liberals' partner in the supply and confidence deal, He's saying we need more spending on health care. Don't expect that to be in this. There's more negotiations that need to happen with the province. But I would expect that Mr. Singh is going to be supporting this deal in the end. Right, because that's the question, right? Because there were certain supports the NDP offered to keep the government going. But if they don't get what they were looking for, is, could there be a problem there? I've already talked to an NDP source that says it's highly unlikely that they are going to be voting against this. This will need to pass in the House of Commons. There will be new spending measures in this. So it will be a supply. and It's a, it's a money deal which means that there's going to be a confidence vote, which means theoretically the government could fall, but that's unlikely. You know, this NDP liberal supply and confidence deal goes till 2025. I don't know if it's going to go all the way then, but it's certainly not going to end here. Jagmeet Singh still wants to get more concessions out of the government when it comes to dental care and helping workers out. 
And I don't think for either the Liberals or the NDP, this would be a good time for them to want to go to the polls. Right. And just finally, then, Mackenzie, so do we expect a decent financial situation, like if things been getting better because of resources? Yeah, that's one of the key things we're going to be looking for, too. The amount of money that the government's been able to bring in additionally, not only from higher resources prices, but just inflation means that they're getting more GST. The number that we're expecting for the deficit is going to be a lot lower than it was in the budget back in April. So that does give the Liberals more wiggle room to be able to spend more. But I think that goes back to what we were talking about earlier. They want to show that there is more fiscal restraint here, that this isn't what they were doing before. If they got a big windfall back in 2018, let's say, they probably would have spent that and put in new social programs or maybe cut taxes to middle class people. That's something that they've done previously. Don't expect that today. I think they're trying to save for a rainy day and pay some of that debt down that they spent so much of during COVID. All right, Mackenzie, thank you so much for that. Thank you. Appreciate it. That is Mackenzie Gray, Global News reporter in Ottawa, talking about the fiscal update that is coming down today from the federal government. It is an important one, right? It will set the tone for the next year. Where are the finances at? Uh, What is Ottawa going to make their priorities for spending? Or are they going to tighten up those financial belts? That's what we'll find out today. And of course, we will have complete coverage for you. Just keep listening right here to 980 CKNW. This is Mornings with Simi. All this week, we have been talking about our toxic drug crisis in our province, and that's because of an all-party committee of the legislature that did their work. Their work was unanimous, which is unusual, and they came up with 37 recommendations to help tackle this drug poisoning crisis that is happening in our province. The question now is, what do we do with those 37 recommendations? Does the government accept them all? Will the government follow through on all of them? Well, to talk more about that, we're joined by Sheila Malcolmson, who's the Minister of Mental Health and Addictions. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. Which one of these recommendations struck out the most to you? Like, what are we not doing that we could still tackle? I, I want to talk about that. I want to start, though, by saying reports like this just bring home again the enormous human toll of the increasing toxicity of illicit drugs, how many people have died. That was really evidenced in what the committee heard. There heard there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people took time to share their personal stories about loved ones who tried to get help and and fell to terrible toxicity and this drug poisoning crisis and it's um I know more of my colleagues in the legislature have, you know, had the honor um, and also the real hearing stories directly. Um, I'll, your question, you know, my ministry team still analyzing the report, but I'll say at first glance, the everything that the committee recommended are things that we are doing at some level and want to do more of. So there's um, n- n- there was nothing that I read in the report that didn't resonate and didn't align with, with programs that we've got underway. Um, one really striking th- thing, though, was that we had unanimity, all three parties on decriminalization of people who use drugs so that they're treated as health patients and, and not as criminals. These are people that are addicted, not talking about drug dealers, um, and also that safe supply was unanimously um, approved and endorsed by the committee. Those were both very controversial policies, you know, not very long ago. So that really says, I think, how 
far the public has come mm-hmm. and how people recognize we need to use all tools. Uh, the committee recommended rapidly scaling up and expanding the continuum of care, they said, as well as improving accountability by defining and publicly reporting on goals, metrics, and timelines. Is that something the ministry can do? Yes, um, and it's work that we've had underway. Uh, and and on the public reporting, you're going to see quite soon uh, dashboards that we've developed, kind of like what we had during covid that will show new attachments to prescribed safe supply so that we can see how um, we're reaching more people with that medication that can has that possibility to save lives. Building the continuum of care is something that my predecessor, Judy Darcy, started. I've been working really hard on. Almost every week we have new announcements on new supports across the continuum of care. We're going to have a major announcement tomorrow um, at um, Children's Hospital. Um, more of filling the gaps in the system, not just adding more addiction treatment beds. We've added hundreds, but we've been hearing a lot from people on the front line and and people with lived experience that it's the gaps in between. It's the waiting for detox. It's the in-between detox and treatment. It's what happens after treatment where you might, what you learned in treatment might slip away. We've been filling all those gaps in between with sobering and assessment beds, with stabilization beds, with recovery beds. But the terrible loss of life says that we need to do more. And and so, so we continue to. Right. What struck me in the report was the kind of the use of language in there as, as rapid, you know, recommending rapidly scaling up or urgently funding a substantial increase in publicly funded evidence-based and accredited treatment and recovery beds. So clearly, you know, there is this desire, the, the recommendations put out there to to put a huge emphasis on this and right away. Is that something the government is willing to do to respond to that level of urgency? That's what we've been doing the whole two years that I've been minister. Again, every week. I mean, there isn't, I don't think, another ministry that has as many announcements on new programs, either beds that we're opening or new ways to separate people from the toxic drug supply or get more access to to um, trauma-informed supports to prevent the addiction in the first place. But honestly, to fight two public health emergencies at the same time without a system of care being already in place for substance use and mental health, and we fought COVID with an intact primary health care system, um, but that was not the case with fighting the drug overdose public health emergency. So we're building a while we're also fighting two public health emergencies and we're asking so much of our health authorities, it's uh, often the limitation is, is what our healthcare system can absorb and also what people we have to do the work. We're hiring a lot of peer workers, people with lived experience. And we've established training and curriculum um, so it's easier for employers to, to hire people with lived experience. That's a way we're mm-hmm. taking the pressure off the healthcare system. But every health authority is hiring. If anybody's looking for work in this area, please check out your local health authority where we really need more people in there to do this. Do you think that some mental health work? Do you believe that soon, like we'll see a turnaround here that somehow we'll be able to bring these numbers down? In 2019, we did um, all the new um, supervised consumption sites and naloxone and treads, the, the number of lives lost, finally started to decrease and that continued for the first two months of 2020. It was when the pandemic hit that 
drug toxicity just spiked. So the, the coroner now says the drugs are you know, at least four times more toxic than they were before the pandemic. And as well, benzodiazepines are suppressed breathing and they don't respond well to naloxone. So the terrible thing is that even though we've opened so many more treatment beds and so many more prevention programs, the increased toxicity has outpaced on that work. And so we're continuing to lose more lives tragically. And that just means we have to work faster and and continue to build the system and and have treatment on demand when people want it. That's the goal we're working towards. We're not there yet. All right. Thank you so much for your time on that this morning. Thanks for the conversation. I always appreciate it. That's Sheila Malcolmson, Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, Treatment on Demand. That is something that we should are apparently striving for, but we are not there yet. Uh, But again, that's what makes kind of the numbers when you read through this report that came out this week so stark about where BC is at in terms of its toxic drug and overdose crisis. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, are you ready for the full blast of winter to start hitting us? Because that's what it sounds like is coming. And that's what's in store for us over the next week or so. So we thought, let's break it all down, get all of the details. So joining us now is Mike Gizmondi, who's an Environment Canada meteorologist. Mike, thanks for being here. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Is this really, truly the first kind of blast of winter? Well, this is definitely sort of a typical wintry system. Uh, The last one we had was pretty warm and mild. Uh, We had lots of rain with it, but this one's a bit cooler and we'll have a bit of uh, wintry precipitation mixed in there for sure. Okay, so let's start with over the next 24 hours. What can we expect here? Well, we've got rain beginning uh, probably later this morning near noon for most of the lower mainland. Um, and that will continue pretty much right through Friday uh, later in the, it should end later Friday afternoon. And we're expecting rainfall amounts somewhere between um, most areas, the Fraser Valley, like we're looking at 30 to 60 millimeters and about 50 to 70 for Metro Vancouver. And so we do have a rainfall warning out for Metro Vancouver and Howe Sound for that. Okay, so is that typical rainfall levels for this time of year? Like, are we back to normal on that front? Yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty normal. Um, you know, every year we get these systems rolling through, and that's pretty typical amounts. Um, it's nothing like the atmospheric river like we had last year, last November, that stalled over the area. Um, this is a, kind of back to a normal system. Okay, so then that's heading into Saturday. What can we expect? I saw snow in the forecast. Mike, what's up with that? Well, that's the other thing, yeah. So over higher elevations today, snow levels are expected to dip to about uh, 300 meters, so... Higher elevations of Vancouver, uh, like North Van, Burnaby Mountain, um, could see some wet snow mixed in at the higher elevations, but we're not expecting any really uh, real accumulations, but don't be surprised to see a few flakes falling down. Okay, so that's just now, but I looked on that forecast that you guys have on your website, and next week I saw flurries in the forecast. Yeah, so that's that's sort of, now we're getting into some real winter weather. We've got um, some Arctic air moving through the interior um, kind of like Sunday into Monday, and probably getting to the coast uh, probably like Monday, Monday morning. Um, and we've got some actual flurries mentioned in the extended forecast, uh, kind of going into Monday and Tuesday. Uh, and it looks fairly blustery. We're, we're looking at um, maybe outflow winds at that point. So windy through the Fraser Valley and through Howe Sound. And along with those, it'll bring a lot of cooler air to the coast. So much cooler going into sort of midweek next week. Okay, so do we think that will actually result in some accumulation? 
Um, you know, it's possible at this t- point. It's probably a bit early to start um, to start, you know, predicting too much. There is a low pressure system kind of off Vancouver Island at that time. So depending where that ends up, like if it moves a little bit closer to the coast, could be some snow. But you know, that's why we have a pop of flurries in there. Um, uh, probability of precipitation. Um, so that's why we have a chance of flurries in there for for Monday, Tuesday. Um, definitely possible, but uh, fairly uncertain at this point. Right, because I was looking at the temperatures there, Mike, and they really are dipping right now, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Even today, like we're only looking at a high of six, so fairly cool. And then, yeah, as we get into Monday, we're only looking at um, high of six and Tuesday high plus five with lows overnight going down below the freezing mark. Um, so make sure you're Plants are inside if you've got any out there and and turn off your outside water probably. That's good advice there for sure. So how long does it look like this low pressure system is going to be with us? Well, the one today um, we're looking at, you know, it's starting later this morning and it's going to continue right through most of Friday. And then that'll move off sort of Friday night. After that, we get into sort of a a northwest uh, wind, which is generally good for us. That'll help clear things out for Saturday and we're looking at a mix of sun and cloud, a bit milder Saturday with highs about plus nine. Okay, so it sounds like, Mike, though, that we should be prepared for just about anything at this point. Yeah, and especially if you're traveling, if you're going into the interior, we do have snowfall warnings out for like the Coquihalla and Sea to Sky highways. Um, so if you're traveling in that area, you know, make sure you're prepared for winter driving conditions. All right. Sounds like it's coming our way. Thank you so much, Mike. Okay, no problem. Have a good day. You too. That's Mike Gismonti, who's an Environment Canada meteorologist, breaking it all down for us, what we can expect. So uh, likely some snow or wet snow at the higher elevations. He said about 300 meters and above uh, today, perhaps, and tomorrow. But then, yes, a chance for some snow in the forecast early next week, Monday, Tuesday. It's going to get, it's already chilly, but it's going to get even chillier out there. So yeah, preparation is the name of the game here. I was asking people this morning about whether or not like a forecast like that is enough to make you think, all right, time to go put those snow tires on or put those winter tires on. Or do you wait to actually know for sure, see the snowflakes falling before you want to put your winter tires on? Uh, Because it always feels like when the snow does show up, there are people who are caught off guard by it and they haven't had that you know preparation done kim wrote me to say i put my snow tires on two weeks ago she said i don't wait until i see snow i know winter is coming just like my passport my nexus card when it's time to renew i do it i think of myself as the what if person it's so much less stressful to be prepared than to be reactive you know what kim you are absolutely right about that maybe it is just something about the way you naturally take care of things i find that if i don't do it right away I'm going to forget about it and then it's going to not get done. So if I don't do it the moment that I think about it, you're right. You're going to forget and then, you know, could lead to problems if it really does snow. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, there is a huge international climate summit known as COP27 that is happening in Egypt this week. And representatives from more than 200 countries are going to be there, including a student from BC. So how does a student from here get the chance to go there and experience something like that? Well, our Raji Sohal is with us now to tell us more about that. Good morning, Raji. Hi, Simi. A conversation with an ambitious student around climate change was exactly what I needed right now. Because I feel like there's so much depressing news these days about the realities of climate change, global warming. We are hearing more and more about these extreme weather events, flooding in parts of the world uh, that don't normally have it, drought in other places. 
And then I think about these climate summits and I, and I've been going to myself really another one, like another international climate summit, uh, which some critics say is useless. You know, Greta Thunberg has even said that she doesn't want to go to this one. Now, some people say these COP summits, they don't achieve anything, that it's mostly the perpetrators of climate change talking about what they're already doing, vowing to do more, making all these promises. And then sometimes they don't materialize. And you look at the other side of things and who can blame them when some of the biggest players in the world are distracted by very real urgent crises, right? We've got war in Europe to uh, rampant consumer inflation. People can't afford to heat their homes, uh, let alone feed their families. So how do we balance all of this? Now, my interview with this local student was a breath of fresh air and just the shot of optimism that I feel I needed right now. His name is Bashar Rahman. He's 20 years old. He's a third year economic student at UBC. And by the way, Simi, he's he's there by the way of Harvard. And he's on an international Leaders of Tomorrow scholarship at UBC currently. But he grew up in Taka, Bangladesh. He's headed to COP27 as part of a, an important delegation. It's called the Blue Zone Delegation. So there's all these different levels of participation, and the Blue Zone is the one where he'll actually be in negotiation rooms with uh, diplomats, and that's where policy is happening. So now you might be wondering how a 20-year-old ends up there. But Bashar was in a public school in Taka, Bangladesh, in grade nine, when he started doing a bunch of community organizing around environmental concerns, very local stuff. Now, his initiatives spread like wildfire in Taka, Bangladesh, even got him international attention. Here's Bashar. Um, so I first heard about climate change when I was in grade nine. And uh, when I heard that one third is going underwater by 2050, um, I was shocked and I didn't know what to do. So I started um, a, a group of, I, I started having conversations with my friends on like what can be done as young climate activists back when I was in Bangladesh. And what started as a group of six people just sharing their ideas and uh, learning about climate change ended up uh, being an organization that did workshops, tree plantation events across Dhaka. And right before COVID in our peak, uh, we were able to reach uh, almost 100,000 people uh, in forty in forty two different schools in Dhaka, so that was my initial introduction to climate change, and uh, then I realized that uh, there are other uh, issues uh, that needs immediate attention, uh, things like sustainable food systems, circular economy. So I started working for uh, I started devising different plans and strategies on what projects can be started in Dhaka, and after coming to Vancouver. Uh, my my perspectives changed a lot. Um, for a long time, I had a very solution-based approach and I thought that uh, the best possible way of making an impact is through entrepreneurship. Uh, however, I've realized re after studying economics for a bit uh, that policy change has so such a big impact and, uh, and it, it often decides and dictates how countries will perform. Uh, so the reason I'm going now is so the world leaders have made a lot of promises. And uh, particularly, uh, I think I'm very interested in learning about uh, the climate fund, uh, the green fund that they have, $100 billion, and how they're planning on uh, making a lot of implementations. 
Uh, as a UBC delegate, um, I am going to learn and understand how a lot of these negotiations are taking place. The reason uh, UBC particularly uh, wanted me to attend this conference is because of my lived and learned experiences uh, growing up in Bangladesh. So yeah, um, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see what happens. So when I'm actually there, so as, as, as a blue badge observer, I will be able to, I believe I'll be able to uh, go to a lot of these uh, negotiation rooms um, and witness how uh, this take place. Uh, so I'm, I'm just going there, uh, I believe, to see how I feel to have a pulse check every now and then. I'll, I'll personally be looking at myself uh, because this, this is very heavy. They're making decisions that impacts the lives of uh, my friends and peers and everyone I know. I, I have a lot of expectations and hope. Well, he sounds very ambitious, Raji. Good for him. <laughs> yeah. So Bashar is leaving uh, for Egypt after his midterm exams tomorrow. And you know what, Sumi? He is so hopeful, but he's also practical. It's really funny to hear him say that he shifted from believing that just, you know, activism and entrepreneurial solutions-based stuff is the way to go to his uh, new outlook, which is policy change. That's what he's focused on. And like I said earlier, there are some very big challenges facing COP this time around that were not there in the same way before because nations are dealing with the fallout of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. They're soaring food prices, fuel prices, and then slowed economic growth. So it's like, how do you balance these it's a bit of save the environment versus save the economy. And so I think um, for a young, optimistic economist, this is a good, COP27 is going to be a good place for him to just learn a lot about how he wants to go forward. And, you know, when you're that age, right, you do have that optimism. It's almost innate. And then something happens, Simi, and I am, that's something I think about a lot these days with regards to, our climate, like how we get, I don't know what it is, worn down as adults um, about how much we can change. But talking to someone who's young and doing something, what they can about it is really inspiring. Yeah, it is. Also, I'm, I admire the fact that he's realistic enough to say, you know what, I, it's policy change that he has to get involved in as opposed to protesting. Because we've been seeing all those protests right around the world, especially over in Europe, those we talked about them, the people who were splashing paint on, you know, paintings like the Van Gogh or whatever it was. And you think, well, how does that get anywhere? And here's this young man who's saying, well, you don't, you have to use policy to do that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of younger people are getting very frustrated, um, which makes sense with what's happening with climate change. And they are hitting, um, they're hitting a wall with those protest actions, because although they do garner attention, it doesn't do anything, not a single thing to change policy. That's the key there. All right. Thank you so much for that, Raji. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Nobody wants to wait for a test result if we're talking about the potential for cancer being detected, right? Well, during the pandemic, a lot of women out there postponed getting pap tests. It was too difficult. Maybe their doctor wasn't doing in-person visits. And now there are major concerns about delays in testing for cervical cancer because a lot of those women who put it off, there was a surge of tests that were done once the restrictions were lifted and there is a big backlog. Joining us now to talk about this is Dr. Anna Wallach, a family physician in Vancouver and a clinical assistant professor at the University of British Columbia. Dr. Wallach, thanks for being here. 
Thank you for having me. How big of a backlog are we talking about? So I am seeing, for pap smears, tests usually come back two, three, maybe four weeks at the very latest. Now I'm seeing anywhere between five, six, seven months even sometimes. Okay, that is very scary if you're the person who's waiting for the test result, isn't it? Definitely. Um, it's, it's certainly quite worrying because the reason we are doing these screening tests is because early detection of changes can help um, prevent cancer and early detection of cancer can help, um, help guide early treatment. And so the fact that we're seeing these delays um, can certainly be quite worrying, especially since there are, for some cases, we have to repeat the pap smears in six months. And if we're getting it with, say, a week to spare before the next six, before the six months is up, it, it can lead to quite a timing crunch. Yeah. Do you think this is resulting in like a higher number of cases? Hard to say. Um, I think what's, what's concerning is that people are, A, this was already, there was already a backlog, like you had mentioned, because people who were meant to be getting their PAPs in 2020, for example, are coming now to get it, or we're coming at, in late 2021, on top of all the people who are meant to be getting it in 2021 and who are meant to be getting it in 2022. So there is that. And so some people I've actually heard are also already put off by the waiting time and said, oh, I'll wait until it settles down. But no, you shouldn't be doing that. Just come and get it done because we need to get it in the system and get it processed. Uh, is there any way to create like a priority list though? Because obviously some people who are getting these tests might already have a history of cancer, so they need to be checked. I don't know if there's a priority list, but certainly when we send the pap smear results, if there are things like if we see something on when we do the test, for example, or if there is a history, then yes, we do make sure that, you know, I personally write it in big, bold, sharpie on the on the requisition test test form so hopefully on the other end the lab technologist can see it and and can look at it but i honestly don't know what's happening on the other end what i do know is the province is trying to to speed things along and there are different um, programs that are being being trialed and there are different methods of doing tap smears that some clinics are able to access and are gradually opening up to other clinics and hopefully that speeds the process along. And then I know in Fraser Health, they're trialing home pap smear kits, which have been clinically tested and clinically proven to work. So that's another option open. And hopefully that frees up the bottleneck that's happening at the provincial um, lab site. Right. What are some of these other tests then? Because I know that, you know, the pap test has kind of been the go-to test for cervical cancer for so long. Yeah, so one is the way, so the two main ones is the way we take the pap smears. So the traditional one is you go in, you go to the doctor and we scrape some slides using um, a spatula or a brush and we put it onto a dry slide and then we send that off. Another way is it's exactly the same procedure from your end, but from our end it's we, we use a brush and put it in a wet solution. And those two um ways of taking it have a different processing method. So that alone is already, will put a, will help open up the bottleneck. The home pap smear test, which has been done in Australia, from what I understand, is the patient will get sent a kit and you do your own brush. Um, 
and you send that off, and it takes the same test. So it's not like it's not a pap smear. It is a pap smear, just the method of collection is different. Right, but that also has its own challenges, doesn't it? Because even when you do it in a doctor's office, it's hard to get it right. As you said, some of them still come back where you need to do it again. Well, it does. So some of them have to come back when we need to do it again, either because of technique or because of, of abnormal abnormal cells. So there are two reasons for why we'd have to repeat it. So you're right. The home test does prove to have its own concerns, which is why it's being trialed at the moment. But like I said, it's taken off successfully in Australia. So I think the hope is that it will translate well here in BC. But at the same time, it's still the traditional pap smear is still being offered at doctor's offices. And so that the, the fact that the other method of preparing the sli- of preparing a swab and taking a swab being open to other doctors is also going to be quite promising and hopefully will help alleviate that bottleneck. Right. Dr. Wallach, what do your patients say to you when you tell them that, hey, you may be waiting months for these results? For a lot of them, it is quite disconcerting because they're used to me saying, okay, um, we'll send this off, take about two or three weeks and one of, and then we'll give you a call with the results. Now I'm saying, you know how I usually say two to three weeks? Well, we're talking four to six months. So put it in your calendar. If you haven't heard back from me in about four or five months, let me know because I may need to chase it up. But if I try to chase it up any earlier, chances are I'm going to be told, no, nope, we're still processing it and there's still a backlog. And it can be quite anxiety-provoking, especially for those who, like you said, have had abnormal pap smears before or have a history of cancer. And it's, yeah, unfortunately, I wish there was something I could do on my right. end except for writing in Sharpie, this patient has a history or I saw something abnormal. But there's really not that much else that we can do. And so what's happening at the lab then? Is it a staffing issue? Is it just a backlog issue? From what I understand, a lot of it is a, a, a volume issue, but also a, um, a staffing shortage. That's what I'd heard that the province has, has stated, that there is a staffing issue. But again, like I said, there is a large volume issue. I personally am seeing um, a whole large volume of women coming in who are due for their pap smears, who were due for their pap smears, and I know I'm not the only one. All right. So then going forward, do you see this being worked on? Do you think it's getting better? I know it's being worked on. Like I said, there are various solutions that are being proposed. I am hoping it's going to get better. It's um, it's with, with each of these solutions being offered, then it can only get better. And eventually we will catch up with the volume of people being due to get their pap smears. And hopefully we we will catch up with that backlog. Right. So what advice do you have then to people, Anna, who are waiting for this? Hang tight. If it has been more than, sorry, if it has been more than four to six months, contact your doctor's office, make sure things that, because the other thing is with things being so long, like with four to six months, make sure your paperwork hasn't gotten lost either at the doctor's office or at the lab. Your doctor may need to chase, chase up the results. So, Stay, hang tight, but the other thing is make sure you still continue to get your screening. Don't let the wait times dissuade you. And if you develop any symptoms or anything changes in yourself, go back to your doctor and let them know because then that can mean another set of investigations can need to be done. That means that 
things will have changed and we need to know that as your care providers. Right. So listen to your body. Exactly. All right, Dr. Wolak, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. Yes, thank you so much for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. 